When what used to be called lunatic asylums opened in any Irish town, the stigma of mental illness quickly became attached to the town's name. Badlesloe was synonymous with detention and people who were mad, etc. Ennis would have been the same. The institutions they housed played a major role in Irish society. They were a creation of, of the society that they were in. But the history of Ireland's asylums is not much talked about and a look into the archives reveals some uncomfortable truths about how Irish society dealt with those on the margins. That person should have been out back in the community and back with her family or making her own life and yet she remained there for 30 years. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Connor Pope. Today, Irish Times reporter Rosita Boland on the forgotten history of Ireland's mental health institutions. Rosita, the phrase lunatic asylum is entirely unacceptable in Ireland today, but it was in common usage for decades, with more than two dozen of them dotted around Ireland. When were they built and who were they built for? They were built throughout the 1800s, throughout the island of Ireland. And as of today, there are 27 of these buildings that still remain. At the beginning, This was an era, we have to remember that the famine was happening in Ireland. There was an era of workhouses. So there were institutions built for people who had nowhere to go and no other means. You know, this was, I suppose, the first attempt at mental health services. There was one in almost every county in the country. So how many patients would have been treated, if that's not the wrong word, at any given time? Are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands? We're talking thousands. The capacity in Ennis was more than 600, and that was common in many of the hospitals. They were not only mostly full, but usually overcrowded. And there is a a stat that in 1956, the cumulative population was more than 20,000 people. Now, obviously, you're not a doctor and I'm not a doctor, so we're not going to talk in great detail about the treatments that people would have expected to get in these so-called lunatic asylums. But what kind of treatments, very broadly, would people have expected in the 19th century or in the early part of the 20th century or indeed in the later part of the 20th century? I don't know how they would have been treated in the 19th century. I do know that in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of use of new drugs which were on the market, which were used in places like the States and Britain. ECT was used a lot and occupational therapy, which we now know is a really useful tool. That came to be used, whether people were working on farms or in the gardens or doing craft work or doing some work that was paid for, like putting things into envelopes or putting things into boxes, which firms often used patients in mental hospitals to do those jobs. And they were paid for those jobs. Were people typically admitted and then released quickly or did many people spend a long time in the asylums? People spent sometimes up to 30 years in these hospitals and it isn't because they were not fit to be discharged. I mean, in in some cases, there were very seriously disturbed and ill people. But in a lot of cases, they couldn't be discharged because they had literally nowhere else to go. Their families didn't want them back. And, you know, we're talking about an era in society when there weren't other support systems. There weren't, say, Mm. hostels for homeless people. The family was everything in rural Ireland and it was an era of rural Ireland. And if your family didn't want you, where else were you going to go? 
it is a fact that there were people who should have been discharged and weren't because they had nowhere to go and people didn't want them. You spoke to a man called Kieran Power. Now, he had a unique insight into how these former institutions were run and what they were like. Can you tell us about him? So, Kieran Power, his father was in charge of, it's now St. Columbus Hospital. It was formerly Sligo Lunatic Asylum when it was originally set up. That was 61. Was that your dad? An unflattering picture of him. So, his father worked there as the resident medical superintendent. Kieran was born there and when he was six, the family moved to Ennis where his father was the uh, resident medical superintendent until 1982. So what was the population then of the when you were there? About 600 I think was the max. Kieran himself went on to work in the area of psychiatry and he later held the role of clinical director at that time and he was in Ballinasloe in St. Bridget's. I've spent my life in mental hospitals. It's such a singular, uh, you know... It is, yeah, where there aren't too many. Now, Dr Power and his family had what we might consider a fairly unconventional relationship with some patients, didn't they? Yeah, so the family lived in their own quarters within the hospital. And as he said to me, there were no restrictions placed on them, his brothers and sisters, with interacting with patients. And... Then he said, in fact, you know, there was one patient, um, this woman, who was so friendly with them that she went on holidays with them. She did housework for them. She babysat the children when the parents were out. She taught him how to play the card game 25. But she worked in the house like any... any. Um, she'd come up and cook meals or... And did she get paid or... Just well, she, they, my, my dad... Peter and uh, she would babysit us at night uh, up to eight or nine o'clock or ten o'clock if they were out. Uh, my parents were out or anything, and that's where we learned how to play cards. It's no small thing to leave your children in the care of another adult who isn't a family member. I mean, that's a. And she was obviously very much trusted, and she. You know, she did that job for the family. What were the circumstances of her coming there? Oh, she was in for, I think, largely, as a lot of the older people, the longer stays, and it's tragic to read some of the records, a lot of them came in for what would nowadays be regarded as anxiety, depressive states, and contracted TB, or thysis, as it was known. By the time she died, she'd been there for about 30 years. It seems clear to me, at any rate, that if somebody is well enough to be in a position to be trusted for the care of children and to be doing housekeeping and to be paid for her work and to go on holidays, that, I mean, that person should have been out back in the community and back with her family or making her own life. And yet she remained there for 30 years and it was because she had nowhere to go. There must have been many others like her, not just in Ennis, but in all of the other hospitals all around the country who shouldn't have been there. They should have been back in their Mm. towns and their villages and living normal lives. I mean, that woman only died in 1971. This is not that long ago in terms of our history. 
One of the things that Dr. Power talked to you about, and probably one of the more disturbing things in the piece that you wrote for the Irish Times, was that, as with so many things in Ireland, land was at the heart of many of the reasons why people ended up in these institutions. It was sometimes the case that patients would be in the hospital and it suited the interests of that particular family not to have them return home. Families who would have another generation of sons, they wanted people out of the way because of ownership of land. And this was a constant thing, even up to the end of my time. Either the land was going to be passed on to a different family member or there was just going to be more space for everybody. See, a lot of people who were hospitalised had rights of way to properties, the family property. But when the occupants at, at home wanted to give a site, for instance, to another member of the family, a son or a daughter, they would have to get rid of the right away for the, the person who was in the hospital. Patients were taken out of hospital by their families for a day and they were brought to solicitor's offices and made to sign, sign over their claim onto various land and property. Unbeknownst so you, you remember, you, that's what happened? Oh, yes. That was happening right up to... Was that happening in Ennis? It would have, yeah. In the, like, yes. in the 1960s yeah. and 70s? Yes. I recall it very vividly in the 90s. We are not talking about 100 years ago. This is our very recent past. Can I show you a passage? Yes. There is a class of patients very difficult to deal with as regards discharge. There are those whose mental condition is just on the hither side of sanity, who with a little loving care and indulgence would stay out for an indefinite period. If the relations among whom the struggle for existence is keen are indisposed to take those cases out, the patients most generally be kept on at the asylum. So what your reporting reveals is a more complicated picture than people might expect of the kinds of people who ended up in these institutions. They were not just people who couldn't take care of themselves. Many Irish men and women ended up there for a variety of economic and social reasons. Yes, and they were also the people, mostly men, who went out in the summers and they worked on farms and they got their bed and their board and they got paid. They would be out for the summer and then they would come back in the winter when the harvest was in. And that was very common in many hospitals all over Ireland. So hang on, you had people who were committed to these psychiatric institutions or lunatic asylums, and then for the summers they were sent to farms around the country to work, and then they were recommitted to the asylums. Well, it wasn't so much that they were sent. Farmers would have asked them to come and work, and Mm. then they came back themselves. So they readmitted themselves. Because there was nowhere else for them to go. Because there was nowhere else for them to go. I mean, you have to look at the original meaning of the word asylum. You know, it's, it's a fearful word these days, but it does actually mean a place of refuge and a place of safety. If you have nowhere else to go, that was the best that was on offer at that time. There'd be no record of some of the things that you've reported on in this story if it wasn't for another man whose name is Eddie Locke. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Eddie Locke is a former psychiatric nurse who worked in Our Lady's Hospital in Ennis for 30 years until it closed in 2002. And what's remarkable about him is that we owe him a great debt 
because he performed a, a really important civic duty in that when he was working there, he noticed over time that there was a massive, extensive paper archive of documents going back for decades. On his days off, he took it upon himself to try and put some order on these just by even putting them into boxes. So when the hospital closed in 2002, Clare County Archives took on the collection and with the agreement of the Midwestern Health Board, as it was then, agreed to store the archives. Now, the agreement was that they wouldn't be publicly available for 100 years. So if you're an ordinary member of the public, you can't access these for reasons of confidentiality and people being named and all of that. But you can access them if you, for academic purposes or research purposes, which is how I managed to get a look at some of them. And what did you find in the archives that you looked at? So there was one particular file which had records for about 45 people or so. One of the cases was a young girl admitted in 1964. Her age was not given, but it was clear that she was young. She was in hospital. She seemed to have had some kind of breakdown or psychotic episode. And the notes say it was interesting to note in this case that her attack was precipitated by her father having arranged a marriage for her with a man of some 56 years of age. She was altogether against this marriage herself. Now, this was in the 1960s. This was not in the 1860s. That was one of the cases. And I read them all. And one thing that really struck me was that there was a lot of accounts of the delusions that uh, those patients were suffering. And about a third of them were very specifically religious delusions, which probably tells us the power that the influence of the Catholic Church had on people in the 1960s. So there were some patients who were convinced that they should be the Pope or they were seeing apparitions of the Virgin Mary or that, in fact, they were in the devil or the devil was in the house. But it was really striking how many of them were very specific delusions as to regards religion. You said in the article in the Irish Times that we knew as a society about the lunatic asylums. They were an open secret. And because they were an open secret, that has led us to an uncomfortable truth today. What do you mean by that? Well, I suppose, you know, they did lose the name lunatic asylums quite a long time ago. They were known as mental hospitals for, you know, I'd say at least 80 years or so. But it is true that they remain absolutely huge buildings. They were very visible buildings. It was, if you lived in a particular town, such as Balnasloe or Ennis, it was absolutely impossible to ignore those buildings just because of the size and scale. And they were like in the middle of these towns or very close to them. Like it's, it's not possible that you wouldn't notice them. And unlike, you know, other baby homes and industrial schools, there were all sorts of people coming and going all the time. They were working there. There was farms, there were gardens, there was laundry, there was you know, there were tradesmen coming with coal and food. And and in fact, they were often very big employers in the towns that they were located in. And they were, you know, part of a the local economy. So when it comes to do with anything to do with money, everybody is all over where that money is to be had. So a lot of local people worked in these hospitals. And then, of course, the patients all came from towns or villages from that county. In Clare, the lunatic asylum, later a mental hospital in Ennis, only took patients from Clare. 
the villages and the towns that they came from, they were known in those places and it was known, it was definitely known where they went and questions were being asked. You know, people, people knew, they, you know, they knew where these people had gone to. And of course, in those institutions, there was a huge degree of misplaced shame attached to the people who were there amongst some families, certainly, wasn't there? Well, it was the families who had uh, family members in the institutions who felt the shame. Shame is a very powerful emotion. And what most people want to do, I'm not a psychologist, but people, when they feel ashamed of things, usually want to hide the source of that. And we only have to look at what happened to the girls and women who went to mother and baby homes. I mean, their presence was never broadcaster advertised by the family members back at home. They didn't want it to be known that their daughters and sisters were in these places because they associated it with so much shame. So yes, some families, if if they had a member in a mental hospital, considered that to be a stigma. By the way, I don't think that's something that's gone away. I think that there's still an awful mm-hmm. lot of... Um, stigmas around mental health patients in this country and we're still you know still struggling with how to respectfully deal with people who have mental health problems in this country and we know that there are very many of them that's all for today in the news we'll be back on wednesday <laughs>